Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 74. Have you ever heard of the daunting stats about a successful family business transition? The one that goes around in today's market is the 30-13-3 rule where 30% of companies successfully pass to the second generation of the family, 13% to the third, and 3% to the fourth. A lot of people use this stat to show how dire it is to have a family business and how unsuccessful the transitions are. But what is really interesting about today's episode is that we discuss how these stats show and prove that family businesses actually have a longer success rate and longevity than the normal non-family business companies that are out there. We have on the show today, Carrie Hall, who leads the Family Business Center of the U.S. for Ernst & Young, and James Bly, who had a family business consulting firm and sold to EY and now runs their family enterprise business services. And today they share with us what some of the most successful family businesses do to increase their longevity and success during a transfer to the next generation of management and family. So if you're stuck in a family business and are looking for some gold nuggets on how to move forward, you'll enjoy this episode because they give a lot of practical ways to look, help, understand what are the resources that are available to you and how to at least begin the conversations. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy the episode with Carrie and James. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Carrie and Jim, thank you for coming on the show today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. You're welcome, Ryan. So, well, for our listeners, you know, we were just kind of chatting a little bit about the family business realm and uh, the the specialties that you guys have. And I'm really excited to have you on the show because I think uh, intergenerational transfers with family business is a huge topic. And there's not we can't jam everything into the the show today. But I think for our listeners to give them a little bit of insight into each of you guys' backgrounds and then how you ended up at EY. Can you kind of maybe carry you kind of kick it off and give your background and then Jim, you can, uh, you can follow her. Perfect. So as you said, Carrie Hall, I am a partner with EY and the America's leader of our family business network. And the network consists of EY professionals in all of our service lines who use globally integrated methodologies. We have uh, counterparts in all areas of the world focusing on family businesses. So it's something we can do together. And really our mission is to help families and their businesses as they set their strategies and achieve their goals. They're often oriented towards growth, but not exclusively. And um, got into it just right out of school, joined EY and started working on family businesses day one. And uh, it's been a segment that I have specialized in for just over 30 years now and I'm extremely passionate about. So really excited to be talking with you about it today. And Ryan, my name is James Bly. I'm an executive director with EY's Family Enterprise Business Services, uh, which um, they had acquired uh, during this past year uh, from uh, you know from us. I was one of the uh, founders of a practice starting in 1982 that um, built a unique model to assist families who were interested in growing larger, more valuable businesses not only uh, during the course of one generation, but also in many instances, transitioning them from one generation to the next. And so I've got 35 years of practice experience and I'm now pleased to be part of the um, EY team that is providing services to uh, families that own larger uh, private middle market companies. Well, I'm I'm so excited to have you two on because being from a you know coming from a family business, and I know there's a lot of family business listeners, and you know I think there's something unique about all of us who like to play into the world of the the crazy dynamics of family businesses because it's an interesting thing where you're wearing all these different hats as a family member and a business owner and employees and board members and all that stuff. So I think you know with with the amount of years of experience we have with you two, we're going to be able to dive into some of the most challenging questions I think a lot of family owners have. And one of the ones that I want to kind of kick it off with is, I'm sure you guys have a little bit more of the the facts, but there's the facts of how 
successful it is for a, of the transition from first gen to second gen and then to third gen. You know, maybe you know to tee it up to one of you two to give us some insights on the, the the facts that are out there on the whole family business marketplace. Some of the you know the general outlines of what we're kind of looking at. Sure, I'll, I'd be happy to go first and talking about some of the statistics related to family businesses. And there's a common one that's quoted that that varies just a little bit, but it usually is like a. 30-13-3 survival ratio, where 30% of the firms survive from the first to second generation, 13 um, last the third generation, and only three survive beyond the fourth generation. And they're talked about in terms that sometimes are negative or pessimistic, but they're actually great statistics. And they show that family businesses last longer than non-family businesses. There's been some research done where if you look at the average lifespan of a company that listed in the S&P 500 index of leading U.S. companies, the average lifespan has decreased by more than 50 years in the last century, from 67 years in 1920 to just 15 years today. And if you consider that family businesses then are going in larger proportions to the next generation, it's actually they're longer alive. Um, If you look at Japan, there are more than 20,000 companies over 100 years old. Holy cow. Yep. And a handful that are more than 1,000 years old. And the oldest of which is believed to be a hotel founded in 705, um, which is the oldest company in the world. And so those that have studied this longevity have concluded that, you know, they survive so long because they're small, mostly family run, and because they focus on things that aren't necessarily tied to making a profit. So it's really that those family values and things that are coming in and um, causing them to be so long lived. And I think also sometimes it's not right to look at a single operating company when you're measuring the success of family business, because there are times that it makes the best business sense to exit an operating company, perhaps to sell it to someone who can take it and take it beyond where the current owning family can. Maybe it's a rebalancing the portfolio, um, wanting to go into a different business, or it could just simply be time for that business to, to die and to make that decision should be considered a success as opposed to a, a business failure of some sort. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, and I, I I actually heard that stat too because it was the S and P five hundred of how fat how long those companies are living there and it, an amazing amount of how many are disappearing through mergers acquisitions or death or it, so the the fact that you, you put it in a different light carry I think is really interesting and maybe we can kind of peel that back a little bit going okay so what what are they doing what are these successful businesses and families doing that is helping. That because you, you mentioned that it's not just about the profits per se, but it's more about the family and the culture. You know, we'll kind of outline some of the maybe uh, the the main milestones and uh, things that they're doing that are helping with the longevity. Well, Ryan, I think uh, let me take this um, yeah question and actually uh, pick up for a moment uh, with where uh, Carrie had left off relative to um, the success rate and transition from uh, between generations. Most of the work that we do is focused on upper middle market uh, family controlled businesses. And uh, in the United States, there are roughly 6,300 of those that have between 100 million to over $3 billion of annual revenue or sales. And and what you find um, interestingly at the upper end of the market is that over 80% of those businesses are second through seventh generation companies as opposed to first generation companies. And so unlike unlike the broader group of um, family businesses that would be smaller, not surprisingly at the upper end, you have many that have um, gone, not only grown larger, more valuable companies, but also have successfully transitioned mm-hmm. those from one generation to the next. In fact, in our practice, uh, we, we've represented families out to one that's uh, 15th generation at this Holy point cow. in time, as an example. But um, one of the words I'm using uh, here is transition, as opposed to the word transfer. Because what you find, if you really examine these the families that uh, are successful in moving from one generation to the next is it typically takes eight to 15 years to fully transition control, oversight, and executive management from an older to a younger generation. And that's also why we refer to uh, generational transition as a process, not a plan, because implementation 
typically requires multiple people and steps over a number of years. And that's also um, a reason that that we emphasize when thinking about generational transition, the focus must be on preparing the next generation for the business of tomorrow, not the business of today. Well, that that's an interesting comment, uh, James, because I, you know, and I don't want to skip ahead a little bit, but I think one of the things that you mentioned, which is transfer, I mean, well, it is a process and it's the transferring of the business of tomorrow. So, you know, understanding how to transfer that vision creation is, is something that I've struggled with. And I've seen our clients struggle with where, you know, it isn't what it used to be. And how do you, how do you move forward? And maybe do you want to elaborate how the business owners and the families manage the vision piece of that? And I don't want to go too far ahead, but um, because you brought it up. Well, um, Carrie, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, um, I'll respond to this initially here. Hey. You know, when you when you say vision, and you know Ryan, uh, oftentimes um, you hear hear words, vision, strategy, mission, values, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, those are tossed out almost interchangeably, and sometimes it isn't clear whether there's, let's say, sort of consistent terminology that is applied. But we we think of the vision and the word strategy is more or less synonymous. It, it's the it's the view of where are we going in the future. It doesn't necessarily address how we go, how we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. That's the mission. But the you know, the vision or the strategy is where do we go from here? And and what our experience is is that um, there are several different types of governance and management models for multi-generational family-controlled businesses. And, and so as part of the transition from one generation to the next, the, the governance model and the management model needs to be considered. And, and how the future vision or strategy for the businesses determined would in large part depend upon the governance model that's been chosen. In some instances, as an example, uh, it's the CEO's responsibility working with members of his executive team to set the strategy. And the the CEO and team develop the strategy. They come to the board of directors and, and they present their vision for the future of the business to the board. And the board either approves funding for it or they don't. But you also find in in many other situations, and we we think um, with more and more of the multi generational businesses that th- those companies, as part of the boards or the governance structures, actually will organize strategy committees, <clears throat> which will work with the CEO and the executive team on the development of the strategy and or monitoring the implementation strategy. And so in most instances, um, uh, how the vision for the future is developed is a combination between a subcommittee of the board, strategy committee, and the CEO and the executive team. That's, it's interesting, because I mean, that makes, so that makes a ton of sense. And I'm curious, James or Carrie, like how off, how, how difficult is it to get there? Because, you know, and, you know, when you've, when you've successfully gotten to the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation, I think you have to have that, that governance model, but, you know, do you, how often do either of you guys see that that's not in place and that that has to be created? Because I know, for example, I've got a few people that I know where, and they're, they're, they're mid-market companies, but it's, you know, self-run. There is maybe not a, a governance model or a board that is there yet. And it's kind of, you know, senior versus junior and, you know, conflicting ideas of where they want to take the company and with different risk tolerance and different visions and different experiences. I mean, how difficult or what are some of the steps that you've seen them to help implement something like that? Uh, Carrie, do you want to take that question or would you like me to? Well, let me just say that the, the scenario you just described where you've got senior and junior and there's starting to be some conflict and maybe different directions is an excellent time to begin to bring on a board and getting another group in there who has the experience, the interest, and the oversight ability to help shape the family, um, take some of the emotion out of some of the decisions and really serve as a good sounding board and augmentation of the skill set that currently exists within the company. Clearly, a board is is the best practice. 
And um, there can be a lot of catalysts for someone deciding it's time. But as they start to get large and have divergent interests, <clears throat> family, again, is, is an excellent time to bring one on. Well, yeah, and I, I feel that it's it, it's taking the emotion out, I think, is the biggest challenge that I that maybe the successful companies have figured out a way to do that. I mean, you, either of you have any examples about the easiest way to take the emotion out of these decisions and how to like actually make it about the business and not about the family dynamics? Well, I think I think that's where uh, the word process uh, comes in, because, you know, to to the extent that um, if you if you if you think about what makes most businesses successful in the first place, they they have a lot of processes that they develop over time that can range from you know, customer relationship management processes to innovation processes to to um, operational processes, uh, you know, et cetera. And, and the growth and development of um, a business requires a process as well. And usually to the extent that, that you, as part of the process, you know, you are, you, you are developing um, better data, you know, with regard to, that can be internal data and external data, uh, to better understand the context in which the business is operating and and so you can compartmentalize things typically in three areas you know one one would be what we refer to as growth and competitive factors and that can range you know ryan from um oh changing economic uh, changing economic environment to um to how strong the company's external research is um, the rate of industry consolidation or change that's occurring, um, how effective their growth strategy um, has been over the past maybe five or six years, uh, no sense of the uh, how aggressive their competitors are, whether they're changing customer preferences, and certainly the impact of things like uh, technology and business model disruptions or even with some businesses, they they suffer from a lack of innovation. So those would be growth and competitive factors. And and, and while um, there can be, you know, let's say, variances of maybe um, you know, a qualitative view about those things, uh, in most instances, you can pull data together that gives you better quantitative analytics that can be applied to uh, help uh, separate fact from fluff or emotion but then there's also two other categories you know the the another important category is that growing businesses need capital to support their growth and of course historically we've we've uh, many instances have had um, more businesses impacted by changing conditions in the capital markets um, you know industries fall out of favor with banks or lenders um, mm-hmm. the conditions in the capital markets can change um, they sometimes end up with therefore capital providers that are not aligned with the long-term objectives of the business the owners um, um, some companies uh, can, are stuck with a burdensome cost of capital etc so been there so um, <laughs> right so so the capital funding factors are important and then then also one of the things that's clear is that if everyone at the moment is doing a good job working together you've got your growth and competitive factors straight you've got the the right type of capital structure in place and you're going to be building a larger more valuable business looking at over an eight or ten or fifteen year period of time uh, you you, uh, you need to think through whether the intent is to preferably hold or pass that that business into the next generation and and if in fact the leaning or the preference among most not always all but most of the shareholders would be to successfully transition a growing and profitable business into the next generation then then the third leg in the stool is there's a number of transition and continuity factors that need to be addressed. Um, it can be you know, an unclear strategy at the ownership level. Um, it could be weak uh, succession management. Um, there, there, there might be um, the, the governance structure that has worked in a given generation. Most instances would need to change going into the next generation. There can be uh, conflicts uh, about risk among the shareholders, unprepared heirs, etc. So, so what what we found is that in fact um, we we have a, a generational 
Transition Risk Assessment Survey, which is a highly effective tools for family-controlled businesses to take and use to kind of gauge in, in some of these key areas um, how well prepared their business might be. And by using a survey tool of that sort, it can also take some of the emotion out of the decision-making because the survey tool has been based upon sort of demonstrated best practices with some of these large, successful, multi-generational businesses. I hope that helps answer your question. No, I think it does. And, you know, I think the the first two are really interesting because those are outside factors. And then you have all <laughs> the internal factors, which, you know, it... I think all those get mixed up sometimes. So clarifying the different, uh, I think the different buckets is important before you can even address them. And it is because otherwise it's difficult to understand what you're talking about, whether it's because so we had our business was a copier and managed IT business and it was cha- the industry was changing, the pricing was changing, but then that also in- impacted our internal communication of what we wanted to do. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because I think it's a good way to, to, to focus in on exactly what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, question for you, Carrie, because I know you, I don't know if you started out as a CPA or you still a CPA. And I think, you know, the, the financials of the businesses, and I'm kind of curious in both your guys' perspective on this, but how, re- you know, the, the business might be ready, but how do you start addressing the financials and the maturity of the financial reporting when it's going from maybe like a middle market lifestyle business of a lot of fun, cool stuff to having the clarity of that data to be able to actually address any of these. I mean, Carrie, do you have any kind of insight on how you've watched the evolution of the financials of one of the a family business like that? So to answer your question, yes, I, I am a CPA and I'm still practicing as an auditor as well. So I get some insight into our financials, but really it's a growth in sophistication as the companies grow. It's a separation of personal from corporate as part of a good governance. It's setting more internal controls um, with the financial reporting. It could be hiring more external expertise but just kind of a a stair step as the complexity of the business warrants and the size and scale of the business warrants. If you have external parties involved from various aspects, perhaps in lending or other arrangements, there's another level of sophistication that that brings on as well. Ryan, is that answering what yeah, you were? Yeah. At? Yeah. It's just like, it's so, cause I, I mean, I've, I've heard stories I got a, of, you know, the 80 year old owner who hasn't shown his 55 year old son, the financials yet. No, but I think it's, it's all intertwined. So I, I think it's, you know, it's trying to un- get the, the mental readiness of the, the original founders or the, the, the family members to trust and somehow it's the trust in the financials and then the decision-making. There's so many of these different parts of, I think maybe my question is, is, because all of those things are so intertwined, like, you know, starting that process, because the financials are different than the strategy, different than the roles and responsibilities. But I I see a lot with our clients or people I've interviewed or, or you know, in our old situation that it's trying to unwind all of those and address all those differently. And the financials always end up being a piece of it because the there's a lifestyle and a control that's tied to that, which then kind of ripples into all the different behaviors. So I think, I don't know if I confused you more or more just trying to say, you know, I don't know if there's a way that you start going through that because it's difficult to start. <laughs> yeah. I heard different things there. Let me offer a couple perspectives and I'm sure Jim has some as well. I think that transparency was one thing that I heard. And if you've got the 80 year old who's holding things close to the vest, it's not a very good strategy if you're hoping that someone is going to be your successor in the business, because really you can't start too young, um, in my opinion, in mm-hmm. grooming successor or successors or a pool of people from whom to choose within the family. And part of that is absolutely understanding and having respect for the financial situation of both the business and the family so that you're learning what that means and how to be good stewards. Financial literacy is extremely important and needs to be built into the education curriculum of a, of a young family member or business owning family member, just like other aspects of education are, as well as what it means to be a good shareholder and um, other aspects of, of education. And then um, good communication needs to take place as well. There needs to be clear communication of what the expectations are, what the desires are, particularly as someone is nearing the point of time in which they are looking to perhaps slow down or exit the business. 
it's really common out of SGF. We had a panel of next gen members there. And one of the things they talked about the most was they wish that the prior generation had shared more with them, had told them more about the visions. In some cases, they were gone at this point. It was too late. They couldn't ask the questions that they wanted to ask. So it's really important to be able to have that open and candid dialogue. Right. And, and um, you know, Ryan, what we've learned is that is that there are roughly 11 categories um, to gather what we refer to as facts and issues because um, the perspectives both let's say within the family or within a boardroom or within an executive team or within an organization the perspectives on these 11 facts facts and issue categories ultimately influence the view in terms of the critical questions that need to be asked on matters relating to where do we go from here or how are we going to do it and this is in and by uh, using the let's say facts and issues methodology it, it's a great way to um, put a process in place and it's a great way to take a lot of the emotion out of the decision making and, and th- those 11 issues i can run through here quickly the, yeah, the first awesome. is yeah the first is understanding the company's core market and then the second is the company's business model and 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 that and its economic model the third is the company's value proposition you know why 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 do people want to do business with the company who its customers are and it's surprising how many companies don't fully know their customers and, mm-hmm. and because they don't they then also can't really analyze who additional customers might might be the the uh, the fifth area is uh, a good handle on the competitive landscape um you know many companies aren't even clear on their competitors much less who owns the competitors how the competitors are capitalized etc into the sixth category it's understanding the uh, organizational capabilities which sometimes actually can be mapped on a resource basis within organization and then of course um, the operational capabilities is next personnel and talent is right behind that the financial management and uh, control systems would be next and the last two categories one the one would be the tenth would be um, the companies that's called technology or domain expertise and the final one is risk management and, and people people when they think of risk oftentimes think well that's how do we protect ourselves from the sky falling? But the fact of the matter is that there there can be risks on the way up. Uh, you know, how how do you fill orders? How do you control growth? As much as risk on the way down. So those those are the eleven categories where where if you then begin pulling together the view on facts and issues that would be in each one of those categories, it that that ultimately is what drives the dialogue to address issues such as the ones we're talking about here Mm -hmm. today. Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, by breaking them into different chunks like that and having a process around each of them, because you don't have to transfer every, it's not like you're just transferring all of you immediately tomorrow to someone else. So you can, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming you're approaching all these different categories and different ways that you're transitioning the decisions and the visions and the responsibilities on each of these different things. Is there a certain area that you usually start first as you're kind of looking at where they look where they are in all these different areas we usually start with where the principal owners or principal decision makers um you know feel feel the major issues or the pain points um and and, um, the difficulties that they're having with um moving forward you know for one reason the other and all of these things uh, ultimately tie together and in fact, in many instances, you know, what you find is that is it because they're stuck on one or two things, they're also missing some others, and that helps you again put this process in place. But you know, if you if you think of um, corporate development best practices, you know, once you would have the um, let's say reasonable clarity in terms of the facts and issues, then if you think of the corporate development best practices, there there are roughly ten building blocks for corporate development those those range from um you know organizational design and 
culture and effectiveness and any changes that might be needed there to things such as um, the capital structure, uh, external research, acquisitions and divestitures, etc. I won't bore you going through another list here today, but but by by having uh, clarity with regard to the facts and issues and then understanding that there's 10 fundamental corporate development building blocks that can be used in whole or part at a given phase or life cycle point mm-hmm. or, uh, for a business, you, you, can do a, you can do a really great job of effectively mood, moving the needle to aligning view, r- reducing conflict, and and uh, propelling business growth. So then, how are you if you're if you're doing that? Which makes a lot of sense as you're kind of breaking it down into the fundamentals. And mm-hmm. how how do you what do you how or what do you do when you're anal- analyzing these different eleven categories and the building blocks? Identify the gaps between the different mm-hmm. skill sets because I'm you usually can't replicate yourself. So if I'm passing it on to the second generation, there's usually going to be lots of gaps, whether it's financial, out of those 11, there might be different, you know, capabilities that, you know, my son or daughter might have that I don't have, or, you know, all these different things. How do you recalibrate how to fill in the gaps and how to eliminate the egos and then potentially bring in outside people? I mean, what are the easiest ways to eliminate the egos in that situation? Eliminating the egos is not always easy. <laughs> I mean, it, and and um, I've, I've found that the the more uh, factually based you can become, the the more dispassionate people can be with regard to understanding the situation, and, and it really really does help to diffuse the impact of uh, egos as part of decision making. We all have egos and uh, most of us like to be right few of us like to be wrong and and uh, and, and yet uh, to the extent that you can reach at least a consensus view not necessarily everybody agreeing but the bulk of the people involved uh, um, reach a consensus view with regard to facts and issues then which of the building blocks need to be applied almost fall into order almost magically so then how do you deal with bringing other is let's let's maybe dive like a little bit deeper into this from the technical stuff so as you're kind of going through this and you're identifying some gaps and everything is there what do you see in how you these deals are actually structured you know maybe you know carrie or uh, james giving a little bit of a, an example on how do you transfer the roles and responsibilities and maybe and then also, how is this structure? Is it through gifting, bonus programs? Is it through leverage? You know, because the way that I've described it to some of our clients, or I've heard other people describe it, is you kind of got the the equity situation where you're, you're you know you're actually getting involved that way, but then that doesn't necessarily have to be in parallel with the roles and responsibilities and all these other different factors. So how do you you know mirror those or align all those together? Well, you um, first need to understand the organization that exists today, how it's how it's controlled, and um, what the background and experience is—not just of the CEO, but uh, professional advisors, board members. Some sometimes you've got non-family executives uh, in many instances in in place, etc. And and uh, you 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 need to examine how, in essence, effectively the current organization um, is at running today's business. And, and then as you begin to think about tomorrow's business, uh, you, you begin to think about or design the organization of tomorrow. And that gets you into um, the, the um, skill or experience gaps that uh, might need to be filled. It gets into um, the people development, uh, et cetera. Because your your um, businesses usually don't succeed, and they don't typically grow to be larger and more valuable to the extent that there's no change in the organizational design. And and so by um, it's almost like building a home, you know, where you try to make your mistakes on paper through um, you know drawings and renderings and and uh, CAD models etc and and the same same too with the organization and by doing that um, you know one of the one of the words that is often misused we feel is succession planning and what succession planning technically means is finding tomorrow's replacement for a given 
person in the organization who has a certain set of skills. And, and in some instances, that's what's needed. But in most instances, what you need to address is what we refer to as succession management, which is, which is understanding the future organization, the future skills that would be needed. And not, not surprisingly, um, you know, uh, if, if you've had a CEO who's done a great job of building a larger, more valuable business over the last 35 years, it's not inconceivable that to extend the growth of that business, um, tackle other challenges during the next 25, it could be uh, different skills than what has brought along the last three decades. Mm-hmm. And so that that needs to be modeled out. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you're 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 kind of taking the words away from we're replacing you to to like it's almost like an S curve in my head. As you know, as you kind of got that, you're 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 just doubling down and reinventing what you're going to be doing in the future. But you're not necessarily having to replace anybody. It's just like recalibrating how the whole structure is working. Right. So maybe question for you, Carrie, because you know when you're looking at let's say. You know, you've got this situation kind of lined up and you're, you're, you're figuring out where the roles and responsibilities are. You know, do you have any examples on how these deals are actually structured from like the, the financial buy-in um, from, the, from the, the, the second generation? And so that's the first question. And then maybe we can tee it up to, the, to follow that would be kind of the active versus non-active kids. Because this whole equity buying in and I think it's, it gets really muddy. So I don't know. What are, you, what are your experiences on how people usually go about doing this? Do you see that as really successfully worked? And then how do you deal with the active versus non-active kids? So as, as much as I want to speak, I have to say, I think Jim is probably better suited to talk about the structures. Well, and actually, it, it, it's interesting because um, this this is a great question. And and um, my experience, Ryan, is that it never seems to be quite as clear as active versus non-active. Um, you know, uh, in a first going to second generation family, uh, obviously the first generation, you've got an active shareholder because if you didn't have an active family member, there wouldn't be a business in the first place. Right. And, 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 uh, and, 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 um, often, uh, often if there are a number of children or siblings, you, you find some who might be more interested or more active than, than others. Um, but, you know, we, we've, had a, we've had a good, good number of first-generation entrepreneurs who've had only one child. And, and frankly, some of the more successful transitions between first and second generation has been if there is only one child because there's no sibling rivalry in those <laughs> yep. situations. But even, even, even as you move into the second or third or fourth or fifth generation, and even though statistically then there, there would be fewer lineal descendants who would either have the interest or competency um, or skill sets um, that might be required. Um, it doesn't necessarily force people into uh, like an active versus non-active camp because what you find, especially as the businesses are growing, and and uh, and also importantly, when you look at um, you know eighty eighty percent of the middle market family controlled businesses in the United States are located within a one hour drive of thirty six smaller cities. So it's places like Pittsburgh and Indianapolis, um, Cincinnati. Etc. And as you take an hour's drive outside of any of those cities, you're pretty quickly in a small town or a rural area, and that that's where most of these businesses are located. What you find uh, is, if the as long as the businesses are growing and profitable, the owners do tend to operate these businesses at some level with a purpose beyond profit, and in that that they not only they not only uh, try to be consciously good employers. But they, they, they frequently do things such as build community centers, support the churches and the schools and the hospitals and the little league teams, etc. And so what, what you find with a number of these families is that there's different ways that um, owners can be active. Um, you know, some, some of the family members uh, would end up being senior executives in the company or Maybe managers in the business. Um, some of the some of the families have um, 
employment policies and career development uh, programs where younger family members who are interested would come in as an employee and would work their way up. You've got others who've had um, success with their careers outside of the business, but they might be a board member or some can be professional advisors. Uh, Many of the uh, larger families have uh, family offices or family foundations uh, with um, some of the multi-generational out into the third, fourth, fifth generation. You get into family councils and uh, uh, or uh, people who are kind of active owners or on ownership boards with some of these businesses. So uh, we, we, we find that, um, that uh, in most instances, it isn't purely active versus non-active, and there can be a range of important roles that don't always necessarily being the person running the business or even having an interest in doing that. Well, and I, I totally agree with everything you said, too. And, and honestly, probably a very healthy family business has a lot of those different dynamics in it because <laughs> it is a lot of the purpose over uh, over profit and intertwined with the community and the employees and the families and stuff. You know, I, one of the things that I've seen that's been a challenge and or I've, I've seen it personally experienced it where how do you, you know, in that scenario, let's say you've got, you know, the second generation who's got a CEO that's going to be taking over and is going to be growing the family business and doubles the size of the business. So you get the CEO salary and distributions and then you've also got all these other people that are, you know, organizing little league games, you know, just to obviously to make it a very dramatic difference. Mm-hmm. But how to split the estate versus the sweat equity or the, you know, the, the salary and the, the wages. And then so that's, I, you know, the, that's tied into what happens if that CEO doubles the company? Who gets the benefit? Because that's where the estate and the company and the the, the roles and salaries all kind of get intertwined. Intertwined, you know how how do you how do you unwind that to make it very fair for everybody, whatever role they want to take? Well, I think I think that's where um, it's kind of fair and informed process um, comes in, and because um, the, I think the issue is, um, you know, if someone is making um, OE contribution to enhance the value of the business maybe beyond what an average owner or shareholder might be doing and and um, if you if you um, think about it first and foremost from the standpoint of a family where there are no owners who are in the executive suite and there's a good good number of those out there and in those instances, a number of those executives will have incentive-based compensation. It's not always shares. Sometimes it's options. Sometimes it's phantom shares, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, whether it's a family member that is in the, you know, a key leadership seat or a non-family member, there's ways to fairly compensate them for what you know, they're doing in terms of running the business or minding the store on behalf of, on behalf of the owners. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so too, I mean, if you have, uh, if you have a family member who is in charge of community relations, if you have uh, a family member who um, is representing the, the, um, the family and the business in terms of, um, you know, their philanthropic activities or uh, their social capital or well-doing, et cetera. Um, there, there, there are ways to appropriately compensate, you know, such individuals for what, what they're doing. And uh, in many instances, of course, it would be the key leaders that are driving equity value creation because let's face it, a successful, profitable, and growing family-controlled business is sort of the goose that lays the golden eggs, and <laughs> yep. and, and 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 the health of the goose is important. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, so everybody should want that to happen because it it actually benefits everybody. It does. Well, so I mean, what, what I'm hearing is that you know just really having the clarity and treating the family business as a normal business without family members and then laying the family members with the right roles or right responsibilities and skill sets into the right things and having the normal compensation structures, even if they weren't family members and just having it very clear is kind of what I gathered from that. Right. And that's, that's actually one of the, one of the um, key reasons that you find that one of the big differences between these successful multi-generational family businesses and other companies. And the key difference is, is that most of these families put what we refer to as parallel 
governance systems in place. And, and what they actually do is they um, split governance between what we refer to as business governance versus owner governance. And on the business governance side, the objective there is to give the uh, people who generally have ownership stakes, now that, that can be shareholders, trustees, beneficiaries, etc. But on the business government side, the responsibility is to give the people of an ownership stake, give them operational confidence that you know somebody's minding the store, mm-hmm. that, that that goose that's laying the golden eggs is being um, well cared for, and and, and um, it'll be healthy into the future. Um, the the uh, on the other side, on the owners' governance side, the key there is to uh, is to um, uh, build uh, human. Uh, capital and emotional development among um, the the owners today and future owners and their and influencers, so that that you can have you know group uh, learning, you can have preparation for good uh, stewardship, uh, cooperation, and and you you can ultimately in that way have a better consensus uh, over the direction that would be provided by the owners or shareholders to the board. And all of those things uh, tie into what we refer to as patient capital. So what you find is that with these parallel governance systems, uh, you've got you've got an effort on the owner side to build patient capital into the future. And on the business side, you have an effort to instill operational confidence in the owners. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's a beautiful way of looking at it. You know, what, what are the different ways that you've seen that things will go south fast? I mean, because I think that, I mean, obviously it happens. So, you know, how, what are some of the biggest roadblocks that are very difficult to overcome that are, are not looking towards the benefit of the business? I mean, what, you know, I don't know if you, if you see a common, theme among the ones that actually end up having to just sell it outright because of the situations most common theme is to is to um, not put adequate time into these things that we're discussing today you know it's it, it never ceases to amaze me at how many very successful founders uh, or CEOs or next generation leaders uh, you know we're you know working with some right now that are fourth fourth generation uh, but uh, but but Candidly, they, in their instance, have, haven't put as much time or effort into these things as is an example of their father or grandfather had done. And so it isn't it isn't always uh, just a first generation going to second. It, what, what you find is that one of the biggest reasons, one of the biggest um, causes for failure is that um, the people who have driven success during the current generation Act as if things will just take care of themselves. You know, and, and one of the one of the one of the big problems that I've experienced uh, in my own life as well, uh, candidly, is is it's sometimes hard to imagine a world in which we're not part of, and uh, and and so uh, being able to being able to put again process in place, recognize that doing it right oftentimes takes you know eight, ten, twelve, fifteen years and and that that without an organized process and without time going into it you know look the the these businesses wouldn't typically as i've already mentioned be profitable if somebody hadn't put a lot of time into into processes uh, uh, and uh, it, it the same thing has to occur on uh, planning for the future and the transition of the business and if if not uh, more likely than not it's going to is fail and it's going to be a takeover candidate for someone then Mm-hmm. Carrie, is there yeah. anything? Oh, I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to add something in that when you think about this preparation, it isn't just focused on business, but also the family that we've been talking about as well. And we've found through research that the most, the largest, oldest, most profitable family businesses, they have a dual focus on the business family. It's not one or the expense or the other. And that strong family really, and that cohesive family really is a benefit when some adversity is there and the family needs to then reach a decision in a cooperative manner about something of strategic importance. And because they've laid that groundwork, they've clarified their mission, they have good communication skills, they're familiar with what's going on in the business through all of the good governance practices, it really gives them the leg up, whether it's 
the unexpected need for a successor because there's been some event or something derogatory has happened in the business that's causing a real crisis there and the family has to rally around together to meet that need. So just can't overemphasize the importance of focusing on not only the business proactively, mm-hmm. the good governance, but the family itself as well. Well, it's got to be interesting. I mean, every business where you, once you have your, it's interesting because it's so tied into the family where, you know, you've got your core mission, vision, core values, all that kind of stuff, where if you don't have that as a family, when a challenge arises where you've got to deal with it or sell a piece of a, the business or buy something, how do you, if you don't have a framework of how you're going to make that decision, you're going to have to do it on the spot, which I'm assuming just, you know, the the, tor- the tension and the turmoil arises out of not having clarity of what <laughs> you're trying to accomplish. And can literally at that point tear families apart, unfortunately, which then leads to the disbanding of the business. It's interesting. Right. I, I, I had this uh, client of ours talk and he, as we were sitting at dinner, he goes, oh, because we were kind of working through some of this stuff. And he goes, literally, sometimes it's easier just to die than deal with this. <laughs> so literally what he said. <laughs> Is there anything, Kara, that you've seen with all your years of experience that you saw something and you, you know, is there a couple of common uh, themes where you said, you know what, if, if they would have just done these things, they probably would have made it. And you, you know, maybe they didn't because they weren't able to overcome it. I think it's common to see, particularly when it's a very high growth company and a lot of focus is being put on the business to really, to focus on that. But those that seem to have the best transitions are those who've really defined who's responsible for succession, who's responsible for the strategy, and often that's going to be the board of directors. They really focus on the next generation and communicating with them, getting them ready to, to step in as appropriate if that indeed is is what they want to do in the business or just to be a good shareholder. Mm-hmm. What are, yeah. what, are the, what are some of the things that you two have seen? Because I know you've you come from different practices and you've probably experienced, you've probably addressed the situation differently. But like, what are the ways that you've helped prep? the the next generation or you've seen people that have that have really successfully groomed those next generation other than like i was just dragged into bank meetings when i was 21 that was just it and i just sat there going okay i have no idea what they're talking about but i'm soaking it up <laughs> but like other than doing that is there is there certain things in processes or things that you've done for that next generation as you have prepped them to take on the responsibility that they're about to experience well, i'll tell you that the ones that do it really well they start very early so being dragged into a business <clears throat> was good um, there might have been opportunities earlier on, but there are families that have curriculums that are designed to start at preschool age and go up to the most senior members of the family with age-appropriate learning about the family business and what that means. Um, helping identify a peer group with other business-owning families is a really good support system. Um, teaching the financial literacy, what we've already talked about. Family meetings and board meetings, when they're ready for those, are really good avenues, too. And EY specifically does have a program called the EY Next Gen Program. It is a global program where we take young members of business-owning families, divide them into three age and experience levels, and provide content at top-tier universities around the globe for one-week periods at a time. Um, They're taught by top-tier academics, by EY professionals, by business leaders, family business leaders. And at the conclusion of the one-week program, they are then part of an alumni group. It's about 600 strong right now that provides a support system and continued uh, mentorship and peer support of each other. And we have found that it's it's been really successful and helpful both from the families that are sending these young men and women into the program and then the attendees themselves to have a better appreciation <laughs> what it means to be part of a business owning family, help clarify in their minds what they want their role to be and um, develop their own personal path forward. Right. I think it's just fantastic because I mean, the, the challenges of, of yeah, having that next generation and getting the right expectations, then the, the communication becomes a heck of a lot easier because I mean, everything from down, down from the financials and how do you do certain things? I, there, there was this one um, conversation where, you know, I think there's this misperception from the, you know, the second generation or whatever the next generation is a lot of times where 
oh, you know, mom and dad make a pile of money and then they don't know what phantom income is and they have no idea like the risk and all these different things. So when you start to peel it back, they go, oh my gosh, <laughs> maybe, maybe mom and dad are not, you know, maybe on paper they're worth a lot of money, but this is not as, you know, as uh, luscious as it looked originally. So you're just writing the expectations versus saying, hey, I deserve a bunch of this, even though they don't know what this is. I, I think you're right on. And it, as the family grows and the pie gets split in smaller pieces, that dependency has to change. So it is really important to understand the limitations at an early age and not have that great dependency on the business because mm-hmm. those, those dividends are coming at the expense of reinvestment in the company. Mm-hmm. And again, part of good business strategy and family understanding of what, what they want the business to mean to the family. There are some that don't take a dime out of the business but they want the family to be the business to be family owned forever. Right. I, there was a story. There was a, a friend of mine. He owns a, a firm down in Texas that they work with minimum net worth of $25 million uh, families. And there was a gentleman, I can't remember exactly what the business was, but I, I want to say it was retail, like 1,200 stores. And the kid, all the kids wanted the money. And he's like, there, you'd ha- we'd have to sell everything. <laughs> again, you're just like, it's, and again, that was, I think that was the example of the 55 year old and the 80 year old where it's, there's just not an, an, an awareness of the whole, environment. So you can't actually have a productive conversation because of how disjointed the expectations are. Education and communication. It's hard to start too early. Right. So as we're kind of wrapping up, uh, James and Carrie, you know, is there something that each of you want to highlight that we've discussed or maybe add to in order to, you know, leave our listeners with? Well, as I've mentioned a number of times, I think it's a matter of, um, um, understanding the, um, the kind of the process methodology that a number of these successful families have used to support both the growth and development um, and financing of their companies, but also the generational transition. And, and ultimately, Ryan, if you read all of the books you know, published on the subject, you'll find that there's no magic bullet. You know, there's no uh, one formula that applies to. Um, everyone or any any given business and and so it's it's a matter of coming up with ultimately a formulation of one there's no there are no never two businesses that are exactly the same never two groups of owners that are the same balance sheets uh, you know etc but if you can if you can start with a framework of basically understanding the the tools and methodologies and processes that the 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 families that have demonstrated competency in growing larger businesses and transitioning them have used and then then you uh, take the facts of your situation and and uh, look at it um, in context uh, you you find that you can very efficiently design a formula that will work great for your business and uh, will be based upon these best practices and and uh, typically can uh, produce tremendous results i love it how about you carrie yeah i would just add on agree with all of that and with Say also, don't forget to focus on the family at the same time, making sure that you are um, devoting equal attention to that as well. And then don't be afraid to ask for outside assistance as well, particularly as you grow. That could be your board of directors, your board of advisors, non-family executive members. But surrounding yourself with people that have different skill sets, different views can only expand your thoughts and you don't know where it might lead as far as new business opportunities and new opportunities for the family as well. Well, I think, and I would almost reiterate that it's almost a must if you're going to actually do it successfully, because, you know, you got to get the, the third party perspective instead of having it just be you versus me or them or something. It's, it's more about the process and getting someone that's (laughs) not emotionally tied to the, the goose and the egg. (laughs) I agree. Well, thank you two so much for coming on the show. What is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with each of you? I would say email for me, and it's carrie.hall at ey.com. That's C-A-R-R-I-E dot H-A-L-L at ey.com. And right on my end, it's James Bly. It's James uh, dot Bly, B-L-Y at ey.com. Thank you two so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Enjoy the chat today. 
Thanks for sticking in there till the end of the episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show with Carrie and James. And for my three top takeaways of the interview with James and Carrie are the first one that you can't start too young. And I really learned this the really great way because of the opportunity that my dad gave me in the family business. I mean, like, we had mentioned in the episode, I had no idea what was going on, 21, 22 years old, getting thrown into bank meetings, the CPA meetings, and you're just, you have no choice besides to be a sponge. And so it might not be right for your kids or the next generation within your family, but really being conscious of when and how you bring your kids in and what exposure you give to them. What I found was interesting is how Carrie mentioned that there are some companies and family businesses out there that will even send their kids and put that in part of the school curriculum, which really shows a proactive nature of the foresight that some of these owners are having when looking at how to transition to the next family member and the next generation. The second takeaway that I had is that process eliminates emotions. If data becomes the third party or the enemy, then it allows you to become team members with the person sitting next to you, whether it is a family member or even just another manager, whoever it is, data and process will allow people to get above their emotions and look at this situation objectively, hopefully that is, and be able to process the problem together as a team and trying to figure out the best outcome that is best for themselves and for the business. The third takeaway that I had was design the organization of tomorrow. I think this is a challenge that a lot of people have. I had it, a lot of our clients have it, and I know a lot of family businesses have that because there is a monumental change and evolution that the company has to have. And sometimes the the business owners have a hard time letting go. So if you're the the generation that's got to transfer to the next one, really thinking about the freedom or the ability to let that next generation be as creative as they can be within boundaries to build the company that will strive and thrive in tomorrow's marketplace because all industries are changing. So in order to survive, you're going to have to have that company and the infrastructure evolve to meet the needs of your future customers. I really hope you enjoyed the episode with Carrie and James. If you got time, go on iTunes and give the show a rating. I would really greatly appreciate it. And until next week.